century number 10 for Brendan Taylor. Adams got the Australian captain. We're talking about Rivada, we're talking about how good he is. And there it is. It's 39th one day international 100. The King gets his crown at the Adelaide Oval. Go on, take it. Deep in Wigan. Glenn Maxwell celebrates Rick Cole. He cannot believe it in the middle of the ground. Welcome to the Dean at Stumps podcast. Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket show with expert analysis by Dean Duplessis. Hello and welcome to the Dean at Stumps podcast with me, Dean Duplessis. Great to have you along. And just in case you're listening to the podcast for the very first time via a friend and you'd like to subscribe, it's pretty simple. You just go to your preferred podcast app, be it Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, Google, and you subscribe and you listen to some fantastic interviews with the likes of Graham Hick, Sean Pollock, Michael Holding. The list is actually pretty endless. So uh, for me to try and remember them, it could be quite tough because there's been so many good interviews. So why don't you just subscribe and have a listen? Now then, the next man who will be joining the list had the the incredible pleasure of scoring back-to-back hundreds against the West Indies in 1994 in Barbados with scores of 116 and 143. He captained England in 1998 up until 1999. Wicketkeeper batsman, now the director of Surrey as well, Alex Stewart. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? Uh, very well, Dean. A pleasure and an honour speaking to you. So thank you very much for having me on your show. You're very welcome. The pleasure, I can assure you, is all mine. I have to say, I was listening a bit to the Surrey-Hampshire game last night. Such a pity that there's so much bad weather around at the moment. But one thing that immediately struck me was what I enjoyed the most, I think, was hearing a proper crowd there again. That must have been quite nice for you. 100% correct is what I was saying to the lads yesterday. Um, it's just good to have one is two and a half thousand people members were allowed in yes it's a 25 26 thousand capacity ground but having played the best part of what six weeks now in front of no one um, just to have two and a half thousand people in almost felt like a full house just hearing applause for a good shot and cheers and shouts uh, and it was actually noisy as well that's one of the things the players were saying whether that's the music may not have been as noisy as if we had a full house for previous t20 blast games but last night you could really hear the crowd and it was a good game you know though it was rain reduced yeah. it was a good game and obviously we got over the line thankfully um, and it was just full of Surrey members Surrey supporters um, but just to have that buzz um, that hum of people in there made a massive massive difference and fingers crossed a bit of normality um, will return in, in the coming weeks and months for all sports um, so that people can come and enjoy watching um, top class sportsmen and sportswomen perform yeah absolutely uh, so initially I remember when, when there was absolutely nothing happening all we wanted was to just have some form of sport again and I don't think we really cared whether there was or wasn't a crowd but now it's getting to the point where I think you do realise the importance of a crowd as well because that crowd whether they're w- against you or for you can sometimes bring the best or often brings the best out of you as a player doesn't it? No, exactly right. You know, you play, obviously you're playing for your team or your club, whoever it may be, your country. Um, but when you're playing in front of a crowd, uh, it just adds that little bit more. You know, you sort of get in that bubble, get in the zone. And at times you say that you block the crowd out. Um, but you'd much rather, I've always said, I'd much rather play in front of 90,000 full up at the MCG against Australia than 250 people on a cold day against Derbyshire, for example. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the sooner, the sooner we can get decent numbers back through the gates, uh, I think the better it is for everyone, those who are playing. 
and, and all those thousands of sports fans who are missing out, you know, there are other ways of following it, obviously, you know, whether it's via the websites, whether it's TV, radio, whatever it may be. Um, but you can't beat being at live sport. Um, one, from a playing point of view, but from a viewer's point of view, and I'm a big football fan, for example, um, it, it is just witnessing at close quarters um, the qualities of, of these top performers. You, you've had a wonderful time of it, um, Al, because you, you've obviously played for, for Surrey for many, many years. Now you're the director of Surrey. It must be so nice that you've been able to still, or that you do still have such a big part. You would have played alongside some truly magnificent players in your time. I, I remember Wakai Yunus playing a couple of years, many years with Surrey and, you know, the likes of Alistair Brown, Graham Thorpe, Mark Butcher. Uh, there were a lot of players, Alex Tudor, who is also on the Dean at Stumps podcast, many of these players you would have played with. And, and now suddenly you've moved on to the next level where you are watching a group of very talented young players begin to make their mark. How, what satisfaction does that give you? Oh, massive. You know, it's, it's, it's a club that has been a part of, well, all my life, really, because my dad, as you're probably aware, played, he captained Surrey, yeah. um, played for Surrey and then managed Surrey as well. Um, so, you know, from, probably from the day I was born, I've been, um, it's been my second home, the ground. Um, but now to be back there as director of cricket, having played for, what was it, the best part of 23 years, then had, I didn't lose ties with the club, but had some time away. Um, but then to be asked to come back um, was a massive honour. Uh, and also now the challenges of making us a, a very successful county. And when I took on the role, you know, I said I wanted to make try and make Surrey the best team in the country, uh, but also to, to provide Surrey players to England, because I think you have a duty to do that, um, as every county should. Uh, and fortunately, at the moment, yes, we are providing a number of players to the, to the England setups across all formats, uh, which, yes, that hurts us. The, our quality players are obviously wearing the three lines instead of the three feathers. Um, but I get as much pleasure from that, seeing our players develop and turn into international cricketers, as I do of seeing our younger players emerge and turn into Surrey players. Um, but yeah, I'll continue uh, as long as Surrey want me, uh, and I'm enjoying the job. Uh, I enjoy a challenge, and you know we've had it tough in this shortened season. Um, yes, we've had injuries. Yes, we've had England call-ups, and our results haven't been what I wanted or expected. Um, but then hopefully for next year, um, and as I touch wood as I say this, that we have a, a proper season next year, um, we can get back to the levels that one I expect, but also most importantly, what the club expect. Yeah. How, how, one, one of the things that I've noticed about you is your ability to uh, almost predict into the future. And you've done this with a number of players. And the one I want to focus on is Sam Curran. So I remember when you took over as director of cricket, Sam was still, well, he's still very young, but he was younger, obviously, than what he is now. And he was more known for his bowling and being, a, I suppose, a useful lower order batsman. And I remember you saying that give him time and he's actually going to become more of a batting all-rounder than a bowling all-rounder. And of course, this probably is going to materialize just as you predicted. How do you have that knack to to read a player so quickly? No, it's pro probably a, a bit of luck along the way, Dean, to be <laughs> honest. But listen, uh, with Sam, it, it was you didn't have to be a rocket scientist to work out that he was you know a special talent. That when I first saw him, he was about fourteen, I think, uh, and then we got him in the in the first team when he was he was still at school. So uh, you see the just shy of his seventeenth birthday, or, or literally turned seventeen on his debut. Uh, we took him out of school, you know, he was still at school 
and, and he, he was playing in front of 20 odd thousand people at, at the Oval and at Lords and things um, but you, and now and again you just see this special talent that develops and, and comes comes along and then you want to make sure that that person really develops his talent and with the right work ethic and good people around him um, then the world's your oyster and that's the same with Sam so you know I said he'd be a better batter than bowler um, I just just because one is he, he is a special talent with bat in his hand the thing that's potentially and sadly may hold him back is just because when he's playing for England he's still batting at eight or nine whereas if he'd playing for Surrey he'd be batting at five or six where you really develop your batting skills uh, and you just find that if you get stuck down at eight or nine you end up batting like an eight or nine instead of really utilising all that ability he has uh, and posting hundreds he hasn't got a first class hundred yet Sam um, because he hasn't had a lot of opportunities so it's getting that balance right of you always want people that play at the highest level i.e. international um, but you also want to be able to see people develop all their talents and ability. Um, and he's just being held back a little bit um, because, as I say, batting eight or nine, he's not going to get enough opportunity. Yeah. The flip side is he's got to earn the right though to bat at five or six. Um, <laughs> and it's that chicken and egg situation he finds himself in. I think it's just a matter of time, Alec, before that starts happening. I, I, you just can't help but feel that maybe one day, you know, he will be able to get that opportunity to really prove himself down the order. I mean, he's done that to a certain extent, but to really show show the people that, you know, as he gets a bit older, he will be able to bat at number six or so, even for England eventually. Um, uh, definitely. You know, I mean, you look at Ben Stokes, Dean, for example, you know, you've seen Stokes possibly started as a bowler batter. Yes. Um, and he's now 100%, you know, batsman bowler. Uh, and Sam may do the same. But if you have both those in your team, then you're a pretty lucky setup. Um, and it's, it, it, if, you, if you're given opportunities, then you've got to grab them. Uh, and that's what we keep saying to Sam. You know, be patient, wait. But once you get it, grab it with both hands and then there's no turning back. So, Alec, I'd like to talk a bit about your career, which I've always been a massive fan of. I, I, you know what? I've always loved that era of the 1990s, early 2000s. To me, that was a very special time. And I suppose the older generation would say, well, I prefer the 60s and the 70s. And, and that's what makes cricket such a beautiful game, because we all have opinions and we all have eras that we prefer. What, what was your most special uh, day, I suppose, or the, 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 what, what do you, will you always remember with the most enjoyment and pride in your test career? Oh, listen, it, it's always a, a tough question just to give the one day, Dean, or the right. one match, right. but I always revert back to my very first test match, my debut, so that's where it started. Um, you know, when we played against the West Indies um, at Sabina Park, uh, it, it was the original sort of dream come true. Um, as I'm talking to you now the one bit of memorabilia I have in my house uh, on show is my debut cap in the V West in this Kingston, Jamaica 24th of February 1990 I'm looking at it now as I talk to you um, because you know, as a youngster I grew up wanting to play for Surrey, wanting to play for England you know, I'd sit in school lessons perhaps not listening to the teacher as much as I should have done <laughs> so I was dreaming of, of playing for England and then when Graham Gooch, the captain uh, came to see me the, the day before, the evening before um, the, the test match. Um, it was a massive, massive moment uh, and one that can never be taken away from you when you get your first test cap. 
Um, but a, a lot of hard work, a lot of support from people along the way meant that I was able to finally pull on an England shirt and wear that England cap with real pride and honour. I mean, it, it was an incredible baptism of fire for you, making your debut against the West Indies in the West Indies and, and also having to deal with an incredibly hostile bowling attack. You know, Patrick Patterson was at his very best, I would imagine, and there would have been a few others as well. And one thing that I admired about you is that you you were able to deal with it and you, and you, you, know, you coped with it so nicely. But I have to say, Al, I loved... I preferred it when you opened the batting. Now, probably you will tell me that, well, you know what, I don't really care where I batted as long as I could contribute towards the team. And I understand that. I mean, I saw you score runs at number six, number three, number five. You know, I pretty much witnessed you scoring runs everywhere. But for some reason, you brought something to the top order. So whether you were opening a batting with Graham Gooch, a man who you looked up to immensely as a cricketer, or whether you opened the batting with Michael Atherton, there was just something to me personally, and I may be totally wrong. I, I seem to think that you really enjoyed facing the new ball, that bit of extra bounce, which would even allow you to, to express yourself by hooking and pulling as well on the odd occasion. Would that be correct? No, Dean, you're spot on. You know, by choice, I've only ever opened a batting. Uh, I think, you know, people who follow the stats of the game will see that that was my most productive position in the team. Um, and that's, you know, selfishly where I'd like to have played all my England career. Um, for the reasons you gave, I enjoyed taking on quick bowling. Uh, I enjoyed the pace and bounce. Uh, obviously, there are more fielders catching, which means there's more or less fielders blocking the gaps where scoring opportunities arise. Um, and I like to try and, you know, take the attack to the, the opposition bowlers, respect them, but try and get on top of them. Uh, so that's selfishly what I'd like to have done. Um, but, you know, then it comes back to what the selectors feel is best for the team, the balance of the team. Uh, and things like so. So, you know, the fact that they kept trying to replace Ian Botham with a, with another all-rounder uh, through a batter bowl, a bowler batter, and they went through a number uh, in, the, in the early 90s until going, look, there isn't another Ian Botham. Is there another way of trying to get an all-rounder into the team? And that's where I ended up taking on the role of the all-rounder, but it, not as a batter bowler, but as a batsman wicketkeeper. Uh, but you can't keep wicket and open in test cricket no. so I dropped down you know I didn't want to drop any lower than four because I'd always played all my cricket um, up the top of the order um, so I went to four and then you know ended up at six so you do as I say you do what's right uh, for the team looking back could I have been more selfish it, it's not you've got to do what's right for the team you know that's the thing but I think if people had their time again as selectors they see that they probably weakened the strength which was me opening with Gooch or Atherton to try and strengthen the weakness, which was trying to fill the all-rounder spot lower down so they could play an extra batter or bowler. Um, and, you know, and then you know, the selectors would have to answer that, whether they would do things differently. Uh, but no, to answer your original question, yeah, given me the choice, I would open the batting every day of the week. It seemed to me that England often, were, you know, they were so misunderstood, Alec, in the 1990s because many people thought that they actually weren't a good cricket team. I'm of the opinion that they actually were a very good cricket team individually. They, they, they were, you had some fantastic players yourself and Atherton, Gooch, 
you know, Robin Smith was a fantastic player. Graham Hick had his, his moments where he shone as well. And Philip De Freitas, one of my all-time favorite England cricketers. But for some reason, you, you didn't quite gel together as a team. And I'm not suggesting that, that, you know, a lot of people feel it was a bit of a doggy dog situation. I'm not entirely, I don't know about that. But it just seemed to me it was quite sad. So many people didn't rate you as a team, yet you were collectively a very, very talented bunch of players. Yeah, and again, yeah, one is individuals have to ask themselves questions about how they performed, etc. But I'll, I'll throw it back at the selectors as well. You know, yeah, there's no yes. continuity to their selection policy, no loyalty. Um, there wasn't enough patience shown. Everyone was wanting instant results and trying to find the, the magic formula to producing the best 11. Well, if you keep chopping and changing, you'll never find it. Um, so if people had been given a little bit more support, a little bit more backing, um, not play one game, miss out and then get dropped, but actually be told as they are now, you know, you're playing for the series or Trevor Bayliss comment when he was England coach, I'd rather have someone play one game too many, too many yeah. than one game too less. And that certainly wasn't uh, the philosophy back in the, in the 90s. So, yep, the names you've mentioned, you know, individually, there was a good group of, I don't know, let's say 13, 14, 15 players who were all good players, um, but either weren't fit to play regularly together or the selectors were chopping and changing so much that there wasn't a, a relaxed enough environment within the England team. You almost felt as though, well, if I miss out today, I'm being dropped. And that's not a great place to be. Um, central contracts, which obviously came in at the turn of 2000, um, have made a massive difference. And the improvement of the selection policies are showing loyalty. And I'm not saying you're allowed to fail all the time, but if you do miss out for an innings or two or a game or two, you still know you have the backing of the selectors, which is so, so important. Um, and that's what you're up against. Right. So um, with that... With that lack of selection, or with a lack of continuity in your selection, um, was there a good team spirit? Yeah, sure, 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 sure. <laughs> I don't know. Sorry, I mean, right, no problem. Home. It's a lovely ring. That's a lovely ringtone. That lovely ringtone. All right. So let's <laughs> let's take that question again. So. With the lack or the lack of continuity in terms of selection, um, how on earth would you develop a good team spirit amongst each other? Because it kind of feels that, you know, there would be, yes, there would be competition, but not in a particularly healthy way. So, you know, for example, you felt that Graham Hick, Neil Fairbrother, Robin Smith and Mark Rampakash would always be playing for uh, a spot on the side or maybe Phil DeFreitas and Chris Lewis, the one all-rounder were trying to outdo the other. So, yes, that's competition, but not in a healthy way. It would be more of a, you know what, I'm pl actually playing for myself as opposed to the team. Yeah, but uh, it wasn't aimed at the other person. No. You know, no. It, it's, you've always got to perform, and there's always consequence for performance, whether they're good or bad. Um, but, yeah, you'd end up. Too many players were not given long enough opportunity to, to establish themselves at the highest level. And it takes time. You know, it takes time to adjust to the high quality of cricket played. Uh, then obviously, you know, the media scrutiny, the public scrutiny and all those things. Then if it's added in, well, if I miss out, I'm being dropped. It, it's not a healthy environment to come into or try and stay in. Uh, once you're a part of it and you've established yourself, then that's fine. 
but trying to break into that established setup because of, as I say, the chopping and changing of selection made it difficult. You know, you mentioned Graham Hick previously, Mark Rampercash I'll throw in there as well. Yeah. You know, two wonderful, wonderful players, the most prolific scorers in domestic cricket um, of that era, of the mid-90s onwards, that there's been. Um, and two high-quality batsmen, two high-quality individuals, two high-quality men. But I think they were dropped something like 15 or 16 times between them. In, in would it, Graham Hick played 50 odd test matches I think Mark Rampert or he might have played 60 65 Mark Rampert yes. Cash yeah. played 50 odd yeah. um, but when you dropped whatever it was 8, 9, 10 times yourself in that period of time that just goes to show there was no backing of the high quality of those two players yeah yeah absolutely one time when I feel that uh, everything did go very nicely for England as a team was my most favorite World Cup of all time, and that was the 1992 World Cup. It was probably just because I was beginning to learn and understand and then fall hopelessly head over heels in love with the game of cricket. But 1992, everything went so well for England, which is why they got through to the finals. Um, I mean, That must have been a period of international cricket that you and many players remember with a great deal of fondness. Yeah, fondness to an extent, but I'm about winning and losing yes. that final. Yeah, was, um, yeah. fair enough. Yeah, still, you know, say great with me because right up until the final, we were the best side in that comp. Um, and there was a high-quality squad, not just 11, a high-quality squad. And I've always said, you know, that was the best group of players I played one-day cricket with for England. Uh, the fact we weren't able to get over the line on the day, one, you've got to credit Pakistan. Uh, and we probably just just fell short. We had opportunities in that final. Um, you know, you talk about, say, the drop catch of the Gooch, Alan Lamb missed opportunity. Steve Buckner, for some reason, giving the Andad not out off Derek Pringle. Uh, and then Wazzy Macdam's two wonderful deliveries to get rid of Alan Lamb and Chris Lewis. Um, so it's on the day Pakistan deserved it. We can't hide behind that. Um, but yeah, it was a, a really good competition. Um, you know, it's a well-run competition, a rain rule. Yeah, you can certainly talk about that. Um, but as a competition where everyone played everyone, you knew that the best two sides would end up in the final. Uh, who's, then, who's going to play best on the day? And to say, sadly, Pakistan outplayed us. And one thing that many people, there's such a debate still about, uh, that still rages on about this, Alec, 28 years down the line, is the semi-final England versus South Africa. Now, you are of the opinion, so many people say South Africa got a raw deal, but, but you have a slightly different take on this. Uh, would you like to just explain a bit more about that? Oh, listen, what, one is a rain rule was in place um, for everyone. You know, we got hurt in Adelaide yes. um, when we bowled Pakistan out for, what was it, 70 or something? Yeah. Uh, and then it rained and that kept them in the competition, Pakistan. Um, and then the South Africa semi-final, yeah, listen, getting 26 off one ball or whatever, obviously, <laughs> it isn't great if you're a South African. But what people fail to forget is that they slowed their overrate down uh, and they only bowled You'll have to tell me, dear, I can't remember, 40, 40 odd overs, uh, which didn't allow us to have the full 50 um, and therefore to accelerate at, at the right speed at the end because they'd slowed their overrate down because they were going around the park. Dermot Reeve was taking down Alan Donald and others towards the end. Um, so that's why I'm not overly sympathetic towards them um, because of their overrate anyway. And it was a tactic that they used, but I admit that that's up to them. Um, so when the rain came, you know, tough, 
you know, that, that's what it is. Yeah. It was tough, but they brought it brought it upon themselves to an extent um, in playing within the rules or the regulations. Um, so the rain was part of the regulations. The rain rule was part of the regulations, as was not really being punished as a bowling side if you didn't bowl your full 50 in the allotted time. And in 1994, Alec, there was, there was, it was such a mixed year for, for English cricket because there were a couple of really in, incredible things that happened. First of all, uh, you tore the West Indies and you get bowled out as a team collectively for 46. That would not have been nice. Kirtley Ambrose was just superb. But I want to focus a bit more on the way that England managed to manufacture a win in Barbados, something that hadn't happened for 50 years. And you had a very big part to play in that with scores of 116 and 143. So becoming the first Englishman to score uh, hundreds in the same test match, back-to-back hundreds against the West Indies. Uh, tell us about, uh, so that was the first, uh, well, yeah, let's just talk about that before we move on to the next great event of 1994. That uh, that must have been one of England's greatest um, performances in the way that they found a way back because they were down in the series, they couldn't win the series, and they found a way back to at least show some face in a very good performance in Barbados. That must have been special for you as well. Oh, it was, you know, I'm not going to hide behind that. You know, I spoke about my debut as the highlight of my England career. If you say we just wanted the one, and Barbados is a very, very close second. Yeah. Um, what, on the back of what you just described perfectly, you know, being rolled for 46 in Trinidad in a game, going into that fourth innings, you were very hopeful of winning. Um, but then Mr. Ambrose showed why he's such a world-class performer, um, bowling us out for 46. Then we actually had a President's game in between, in, I think it was the Leeward Islands, potentially, or St. Kitts, somewhere like that. And we lost that. So we got to Barbados um, on the back of two big hidings. Um, and then history will say we've turned it around. Now, you know, Michael Afton and myself opened. Um, when we went out to bat, you know, the ground erupted. Uh, the ground was half full of English supporters who paid good money to come over to support us. Uh, and we put on a big opening stand. Um, I have to admit, we got to... There's a massive, you know, round of applause and cheer uh, early on or relatively early on before lunch. And me being a bit dumb, you know, I said, ah, what, what are they on about? We haven't posted a 51 partnership yet. Right. Uh, he said, no, we've just gone past 46. I went, oh, uh, right, okay. Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> so, but, but we, you know, we put on, well, you'd have to tell us, 120, I think, for yes. the opening stand. Very much so. Um, and it was a good it was a good pitch. Yep, it, you know, they had Roche and Ambrose bowled quick. The two Benjamins were lively. Um, but it was a good batting surface. It, it, it was quick and bouncy, but true. And it was a fast outfield. And, Listen, I, yes, I played. You know, I played very well. I'm going to sound big-headed or arrogant. No. Just try and be honest there. But yeah. you know, I played well. Um, and then we got the West Indies on the back foot. Uh, and then I was able to replicate it in the second innings. And Angus Fraser um, got eight for in the game as well um, to to win it. So it was a massive turnaround. Um, you know, there's a slight dent in it. The fact that we already lost the series, but to spin it around from 46 all out to then win it. Well, where they were just undefeated, basically, West Indies in Barbados. So they had a real stranglehold there. It was it was their territory. Um, and to spin it around the way we did in the space of 10 days or whatever was a real credit to, to everyone involved, uh, plus the fact that there were so many English supporters out there to witness it. 
Yeah, there were some there were some wonderful performances again uh, on that. I mean, obviously Brian Lara's world record was special. Angus Fraser eight for seventy five, if I remember correctly, that's uh, what he took. And uh, Robin Smith also getting a, in the same test that Brian Lara got that three hundred seventy five. Robin Smith was just unbelievable. Yeah, Graham Hick also getting a ninety odd. So there were many good things that happened. It's just the results, obviously. Now let's move to July of the same year, the third test match at the Oval, and you'll know exactly what I'm about to be talking about that incredible spell of bowling by Devon Malcolm was that the best spell of bowling you had seen by anybody yeah at that stage it was the quickest um, not by anybody you know yeah. it was the best spell of bowling I'd seen by an Englishman at that stage because he, he just got it right you know when Devon was hot he was red hot and he bowled just call it the speed of light and he really did and it was probably the only time in my whole international career when I saw top-order international batsmen look, I won't say scared, but were timid um, against that raw naked pace because he came charging in um, and and got it right. And when, as I say, when Devon got it right, not only did he bowl 90 mile an hour plus, he got it to swing as well, um, but he bowled a, a real heavy length where at times you didn't know whether the evade it by ducking it where you had to stand up and play it and you didn't have too much time to decide and he got it absolutely spot on so it was a so an unbelievable passage of, of play of high quality fast aggressive but controlled bowling that was good. And that's what I also appreciated, and I'm being a little bit biased here, but uh, you then needed, uh, what, about 216 or so to win. And, and Graham Gooch got England off to such an incredibly uh, quick start. You know, the, the England was scoring at eight, nine runs and over. He really took on Alan Donald quite nicely, I remember. But then Graham Hick at number three was unable to score 81 not out of 81 balls. And I, I think, at, to a certain extent, showed that he was just as capable of hooking and pulling because Alan Donald was obviously trying to bounce him out. And on that particular day, it wasn't working because Hickey was pulling in front of square and hooking down to deep backward square leg and, you know, um, stroking the ball through the covers. That obviously nothing would compare to Dev Malcolm. But to me, I, I really appreciated what, what Graham Hick did in chasing down that, yeah. that tricky total. Listen, you're allowed to be biased as well, Swartiggy, because he's just a, a wonderful talent. You know, so such a prolific run scorer, and it, uh, and it's. I actually think it's sad, you know, that he's finished his Test career averaging, I think, early thirties, yeah. when he, he should have averaged near a fifty either side of fifty. He was that good, um, but because, you know, go back to the earlier part of this conversation about not getting the support, not getting the backing. Um, not enough people showing faith in him. He was built up as, you know, England's answer to, to all the, the England woes when he qualified as an Englishman. Uh, what people didn't realise, he made his debut against a high-quality West Indies attack. Yes. yes, he'd scored 100 for Worcester in the tour game leading into that. Um, but it's a massive, massive difference. And it's not just the quality of the cricket. You know, I repeat myself again by saying it's a scrutiny that you find yourself under. Uh, and it was all very new to him. And because he didn't get off to a flyer in his international career, it was the first time probably that he'd ever experienced adversity or a little bit of failure because as a youngster, he'd have been prolific back in Zimbabwe. When he came over to Worcester, he just ripped up the championship, county championship with all those runs he scored. And then he had a little setback. And then so one, it's how do people deal individually with setbacks? 
But that's when you need good people around you to support and back you. And he didn't get that from the England selectors. Um, so we saw glimpses of how good Graham Hick was. But, I, you know, as I say, I can only speak in glowing terms about yes. him by saying he should have averaged either side of 50. And I seriously believe he would nowadays if the, the, the situation is around now, central contracts and continuity of selection and backing that the players experience now if, we, if Graham Hick had that during the 90s. And then, uh, I suppose, being Zimbabwean, we have to just briefly touch on England's tour of Zimbabwe in 1996. Now, we, we as Zimbabweans were thrilled. We, we, I mean, obviously, growing up, we saw a lot of county sides tour Zimbabwe, and we got to witness and experience. You know, at times, it looked a bit like, uh, like international cricket, because I remember once there was this triangular series between Worcestershire and Warwickshire. So you had Graham Hick, Tom Moody, and Ian Botham playing for Worcestershire. Do you remember that time when Ian Botham was with Worcestershire and for Warwickshire, yeah. you had you know Dermot Reeve, Trevor Pe- Trevor Penny, and a couple of others. So it was it was fantastic as Zimbabwean supporters. Now suddenly and finally, we had the England Test team in 1996, but it didn't go particularly well. I mean, certainly that first Test match in Bulawayo, you should have won uh, due to some very uh, strange tactics by Zimbabwe towards the end, and not very good umpiring, it has to be said. Because well, uh, no, I'll just uh, let me just interrupt yeah, you. Yeah, please, please, please do. But- they were within their rights to do what they did right. because there was no regulation or law at the time to say you couldn't bowl down the leg side. Um, it's probably after that test match when the consistent leg side bowling was was then changed. So, you know, they played smart cricket, Zimbabwe, there. Yeah, I know, you know, David Lloyd, the coach, Bumble said we flipping murdered them or whatever. <laughs> yes. um, we may have done, but we didn't win. So as frustrated as we were, we should actually look back and go, well done Zimbabwe. You know, they, they were streetwise and, and cricket smart in making sure they didn't lose. And, that, and that's what it's about. So, yeah, there were massive frustrations at the time. Um, but, yeah, that, that's, uh, to me, I'm trying to, you know, throw it back at you and say, no, credit Zimbabwe. Yeah, you can talk about did they play it in the right spirit. <laughs> the spirit of cricket is a nice headline, but it's about winning. And if we play within the laws of the game, then I don't think Zimbabwe should be criticised for the way they went about trying to draw the game and not lose it. What really, the second test match, had it had there not been so much rain around, that could have gone either way, though, couldn't it, Alec? Because England were bowled out cheaply, Zimbabwe got themselves into a position, but then you scored a very good 100, and Graham Thorpe had been very much out of sorts, then suddenly battled and grafted his way to a very good 50. That that second test, had, had the rain not been around, could have been set up rather nicely going into the fifth and final day. Oh, it could have been, 100%. You know, I'm going to get was it 100? I can't remember what I was, but I reckon it's worth about 200. It was the slowest outfield I've ever played on at the Harare Sports Ground there. You, you had to belt the ball and it hardly got off the square. Yeah. Um, but no, it was set up nicely, <laughs> but yeah, sadly, you can beat a cricket team, but you can't beat the weather. And uh, t- talk to us a bit briefly before we move on to your, 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 the final spot, which is your captaincy, which I was a big fan of. Um, that third and final One Day International where... Uh, so uh, Mike Atherton wins a toss, immediately puts Zimbabwe in, and rightly so, because the over conditions were, were perfect for Darren Goff and the rest of the England seamers to exploit. But Zimbabwe get a, a tricky total of 249 for seven, and then Edo Brandis comes along and takes a hat-trick. Um, uh, what, what was 
so special about the way that Edo bowled? Was it just the fact that he got the away swinger going quite nicely? Was he relatively quick? What what happened on that day, in your opinion? Yeah, no, I mean, he got it right. People are allowed to perform well, and Edo was was a good performer. You know, the, the chicken farmer is, is he <laughs> was titled up, but you know, put the chicken farmer to one side. He was a seriously good bowler. Um, and you don't play international cricket unless you do have talent, and, and he had that in abundance. And you know, Zimbabwe were a were a good side. You know, I know they've had some tough times since, yeah. um, but at the time, you know, look at some of those players that were playing. You know, whether it is, you know, the, the Flowers, whether it, it was Henry Alonga, whether it was Edo Brandis, you know, the Whittle brothers, they were talented cricketers. Um, and Edo on that day got it absolutely spot on. You know, once you run up and bowl quick, and he was, I don't know, mid late eighties, um, with, with the ability to swing the ball out and bowl the right lines and length, you're asking questions of the batsman, and he thoroughly deserved that hat trick. You know, it wasn't reckless batting; that was high quality bowling, uh, and that's something that can never be taken away from him. So, yeah, it's um, you know, at times you just have to doff your cap and go, well bowled. Yeah. Not too much you can do about it. 1998, you took over the captaincy. Uh, and you, you, one of the things that I'm sure stand out very, in a very proud moment for you as captain was the series win over South Africa. Um, there were some wonderful performances. That, that contest between Donald and uh, Atherton was wonderful. You scoring a brilliant 100 as well. I remember when England were in all sorts of trouble. And some South Africans will say that there were some questionable decisions by umpire Javed Akta, which, uh, which lost him a test match. But one thing that I'd like to ask you, and it's a bit of a tricky question, is di- did you discover new things about yourself? I hope this makes sense. Did you discover new things about yourself as a captain? Because it seems to me captaining England can be quite difficult at times. No, it is. Um, but again, it's like any job. You, you shouldn't take on a job if you don't think you can do it. Yeah. Um, and I'd captain Surrey before. You know, I know it's far lesser level, but I captain age group sides um, throughout my formative years. So when I was asked to captain England, one is it's a massive honour. Uh, but you've got to think it through. You don't just say yes. You've got to think it through and say, well, can you do it? Um, you won't know exactly whether you can do it and everything that comes with the job until you are in that role. Uh, but I've been vice-captain of Mike Athlin for a number of years uh, and I'd seen how he'd gone about it. I'd seen the, the expectations, how time-consuming it is. Um, but I was prepared, you know, to take on those challenges. And I always say, even now in my role at Surrey, you know, when I speak to a captain, they say, you know, the most important thing you can do is still, if you're a batsman and captain, is first and foremost, you score runs because there's nothing worse than you're only in the side because you're captain. You've got to be in the side first and foremost to score the runs or if you're a bowler, take wickets and then your captaincy. But you've got to make sure that you don't let the the extra um, work and time-consuming hours of captaincy interfere with your own preparation and performance. And if you can balance that up, then it's a great job. Um, and, you know, Pusa, it's probably the toughest job after being the Prime Minister of the country, then being the England football manager, then the England cricket captain. That's what it used, used to be said. But, you know, it's an honour. You take it on. And, and I enjoyed it. Do you discover new things about yourself? I think you should try and do that every day anyway. Yes. Um, you know, that it, once you say you've cracked it or you've learned everything, well, you, you're probably a liar or a bloke <laughs> who doesn't want to uh, get better and improve. So you should always challenge and test yourself. Uh, and you do. You know, you've got to have your man management skills. You've obviously got to have tactical nous. 
Uh, it helps if you've got a good 11 um, to take on a field with you uh, and all those types of things. But it's, um, it, it was an honour and, and I enjoyed it. You know, it was relatively short-lived, uh, but I enjoyed it. You know, winning that series against South Africa, you know, was again, is again a, something that, that I've put right up the top there of, um, of achievements in my career because I always say you, you feel success and failure more as a captain than you do just as a player. So uh, is it very difficult, Alec, to, to uh, manage? Because uh, there's so many players with different personalities. You know, I, and I'm just, from the way, looking as an outsider, Nasser Hussain reminds me of a very intense, very, very intense sort of a cricketer. Um, Mike Atherton, although when he speaks, his voice has a very nice smile. I detect a smile in his voice predominantly when he speaks, but I believe he could be a bit grumpy at times. Well, which we all can. We, we all can <laughs> be, of course. Have, we can. must have met them both. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, so you, and then you would have had Graham Hicks, this very quiet, reserved, um, at times almost timid-sounding person, um, you know, and various other characters. So is it quite difficult to, to manage these types of people when you are all together in a, a team and a squad? I wouldn't call it difficult. It's a challenge. You know, you, you're working out, one, how to deal with people individually, how to deal with them collectively. Um, but you also want those people to feel relaxed in the environment, uh, and that's where it comes back to backing and support. Yeah. And I always say, as long as you're honest, uh, and the individuals you're dealing with are honest with themselves too, then you know, I believe they're the formulas. Um, honesty is massive. Um, and, and allow people to express themselves. Um, and then if they want to say, have questions, ask them. You know, we, we can't get inside everyone's head. Uh, and this is what I say to our players at Surrey is express yourself, ask questions. Or if you disagree, you know, come and come and have a chat instead of bottling it up or having, as I call them, corridor chats. Yes. Um, get it out in the open, you know, because if people don't know, then nothing can be done. And if you can try and create that environment, and I appreciate it's easier said than done, and um, if you try and achieve that honesty and openness, um, then you give yourselves and those individuals are giving themselves of really creating a good team environment, and therefore that can help team results. And of course, somebody who was always prepared to, provided he wasn't injured, somebody you could always throw the ball to, be it on a flat pitch or a seeming swinging pitch, would be Darren Goff. That must have been a wonderful uh, asset to have someone like Goffy in the side. Uh, he's a champion. You know, he's one of my best mates, but I always said, um, you know, he's, he was one of the first names, not the first name on the team sheet when I was captain, because you knew you were getting, you're getting a wholehearted cricketer, highly skilled cricketer, the same bloke whether he got naught for 100, which very rarely happened, or five for 10. Yeah. Um, he was a fully committed team man. Yet he, he has that, if you want to call it brashness, and he, he backs his own ability. You know, at times people will misinterpret that as being big-headed or whatever. Um, but it's just, that's his honest way. And, and you can have a, a disagreement with Goffey, uh, differing of opinions. Five minutes later, he's back being exactly the same person. <laughs> so, you know, to me, he's a champion. Um, and a really good man. So, yeah, everything he achieved in his career, he thoroughly deserved. Yes, it was blighted by injury, um, but he should still be proud because I know every time he pulled on that England shirt, he gave 100%. Alex Stewart, you're a very busy man. You've got to make sure that Surrey obviously does as well as they possibly can. So thank you so very much for giving us some of your time. It has been an honour and a privilege talking to you and wishing you all the, all the success and, of course, Surrey for the rest of the English season and the summer. Thank you so much for spending time on Dean at Stumps.
Thank you, Gene. Pleasure to be with you and hope a few people who are listening have enjoyed it. But thank you for your time as well. You've been listening to Dean at Stumps, Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket podcast. 